0: Hello. Welcome to the Water Justice Podcast. Join us as we share stories from various voices responding to water and social justice challenges across the globe. Your hosts, Tim Wiffen and myself, Kat Taylor, acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia on which this podcast has been produced, and we honour their connections to land, sea and community. If you've
1: ever dug a hole at the beach, you might know what it is like to strike water. This is an experience we soon may not be able to share inland, where groundwater is rapidly depleting the world over. To mitigate the risks associated with over-extraction of groundwater, we need a plan, something Professor Jay Eddy says we are lacking in many cases. As the executive director of the Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan, and an advisor to many state, provincial and federal government officials on water security issues in North America, Jay does a lot of heavy lifting advocating this subject. The What About Water podcast, found on all good podcast players, is also hosted by Jay in his quest for better science communications. Inspired by his media appearances and vast contributions to his field, I spoke to Jay to get an unfiltered introduction to the subject of water security in an age where floods and droughts can affect the same area in a short period of time. Thank you for joining us on the Water Justice Podcast, Jay Eddy. I'd like to start by asking how you feel water security is represented in public discourse. If you could stress the importance of water security to global leaders, what would you say?
2: I would say that it's taken for granted that, you know, like democracy, it's incredibly hard work. It just doesn't exist. There needs to be real commitment and, and real understanding. And in my experience, you know, that's that's not always there. Mm. And when we look around the world, we can see places that maybe have enough water, but don't have water security because the government doesn't have that commitment. And so that's that's really frustrating.
1: Could you give an example of what a good policy in that space might be then? If we consider, especially first world nations that have access to quite a bit of water but aren't putting good policies around it, what might that look like?
2: Well, I think uh, for you know a simple definition for me of water security is does a region have the commitment to providing a reliable supply of potable water to the population to do the things that that region wants to do. And we know that that's quite varied these days. So it's water for people, it's water for the environment, it's water to grow food and for industry and for economic growth and and to produce energy. And so all those things I think have to be accommodated and it's not one versus the other. So in my mind, a sound policy recognizes all those competing needs and has some kind of transparent way to make those allocations. And you know the transparency is important because if you don't have the transparency then it becomes us versus them. It becomes, you know, city versus rural, you know, agriculture versus environment and that's ridiculous because we need all of those things. So, I also feel like there's a big educational burden around what I just mentioned there. And you know, I'm at the Global Institute for Water Security, so it's part of my mission. To do that education and to help decision makers understand, because let's face it, they're not educated in in water and climate change, you know, the way people in my field are. So I just feel that's part of my responsibility to to do that education, to help them understand what water security really means and how it, it, it can't be taken for granted.
1: And I think your resume, let's say, in the educational space, is I think in in some ways unparalleled, and especially on something like the "What About Water" podcast, um, as well oh, as regular you very regular much. feature. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. Next time I need a letter of recommendation, I will uh, ask you to write one. Thank you so
1: much. <laughs> Listen, Jay, I'd like to return maybe to a, a sort of negative space. Could mm. you summarize? the global threats to water security for our listeners what are what are your concerns going forward
2: i have i have many concerns and i'll summarize them from the uh, i'll give you a spatial picture because that's what i do i work with satellite data and these days i'm i'm thinking about how to translate and make that satellite data actionable and bring you know bring the message bring the understanding to the different regions but there's a broad picture that's emerged from our nasa satellite data which we've been analyzing for twenty years, and then before the satellites even launch, preparing to analyze for you know another five or six years. So you're talking about a quarter century of work in two solid decades of of studying and watch and watching these very rapidly developing scenarios sort of develop right right in front of me through these satellite images. So so overall, we've got to think of a, a global map, right? And we've got sort of a background pattern of. The high latitudes, both the northern and southern hemisphere, and the tropics Mm -hmm. getting wetter, right? So high latitudes, low latitudes, so like boreal forests and, you know, the tropics getting wetter. And in between, the arid and semi-arid parts of the world getting drier. And that's driven by climate change, and that's been predicted by the IPCC climate change models, you know, since the beginning of the IPCC reports. But, you know, those reports were really... Targeting the end of the 21st century, and we're we're seeing that now. And sprinkled on top of of this broad background pattern are these hotspots for too much or too little water, and they relate to things like you know too much. It's going to be flooding. It's uh, that's increasing, you know, because of the changing streams due to climate change, and too little. And it's the too little that I think are a little bit more widespread and more fixed. And so these are places where, of course, the ice sheets are melting in Greenland and Antarctica. The glaciers, the mountain glaciers on the continents are melting away. Some of the hottest spots for those are the Himalayas and Alaska and down the southern tip of South America in Patagonia. We've got the places where the changing extremes of droughts are, are, you know, the increasing frequency of drought playing out. One of the signals that's getting strongest now is the European signal. So there's a broad swath of Europe that, you know, we see it in the news. And it's been in the data for a few years. I probably should have done a better job communicating on it. There's a reason why I didn't. We can, we can get to that later. It's because I didn't see it until recently, and because I was looking at older data. And then there's the spots for groundwater depletion. And those are, you know, over half of the world's major aquifers are being rapidly depleted. And that's on us, right? So all of this that I'm talking about is really on us. It's a like climate change, hmm. ice melting, changing extremes, and lack of groundwater management plans around Mm. the world. So, you know, dealing with that and trying to figure out what humans can do to adapt to that and to try to slow that down is what I'm focused on, you know, for the rest of my career, which Mm. I don't want to work forever, but I might because it's a a complicated
1: (laughs) problem. Gosh, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel bad on, I feel bad for, I guess, leaving that hole that we sort of Ask you to fill
2: <laughs> yeah well it's uh, someone has to do it mm. um, you know I'm like an overgrown boy scout, so like if somebody <laughs> says something needs to be done then I'm you know i'm I'm happy to go to go do it and mm. I don't know you know I think it comes with the territory of having the privilege to see this data and, and sometimes be the first to see these data and to do new and cool things and you know it's great for your scientific career and it's a lot of fun but that the the subject matter is quite serious and I think comes with the along with having that privilege is the responsibility to let people know and let people at all levels know whether it's elected officials or decision makers or the general public.
0: You're listening to the Water Justice Podcast. To stay up to date with the program and other content from the Water Justice Hub, you can follow the hub on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook at water justice hub
1: you mentioned groundwater earlier it's not something we've covered on the podcast yet i'd be interested to know if like over extraction is the big problem there or whether we're we're sort of sitting within the boundary of allowing uh, gra- like g- groundwater to replenish as fast as we are taking it out is is that a, a problem in that space if that is the problem, in, the problem in that space
2: so yeah and the reason that it's the problem is that groundwater is invisible it's it's mm-hmm. under the ground we don't see it we don't think about it and those that are smarter than us have uh, have drilled a bunch of wells and you know have, have been extracting that water and in many places in the world if you own the land and you can dig a well and you can you have the right to pump as much water as you need even when that means if you you know you're pulling water in from from beneath your neighbor's property and you're making it more difficult you're lowering the regional water table and, you, and you're causing other people's wells to go dry. So mm. most of the places that have large areas, large regions around the world, these major aquifers that I talked about that have a groundwater depletion problems have them because of overextraction and it's overextraction really by agriculture. Mm. And this is a problem because we need to eat yet our groundwater is running out and you and I both want to eat tomorrow and we want our kids to, you know, be eating and we want our grandkids and great grandkids and, you know, generations and centuries of people to be eating. Uh, and we're not going to be doing that if we mm. don't sustain our groundwater. So it's, a, you know, not just a water security problem, but it's a food security problem, too. And so we really need to get a handle on that around the world. So that we can sustain groundwater for for the generations to come.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that leads fantastically into the next question. You have spoken in various forms about respecting water security as of equal concern to to carbon, for those very reasons, and that it is such a fundamental part in, in food security. So why do you think that water governance or lack thereof uh, goes I guess underappreciated as a threat to to earth and humanity I, I feel as if it's not talked about as much as you know the the threat of carbon
2: it it's not and so I, I'm trying to change that as as you mentioned and um I don't really know I mean if I knew I would try to fix it and I can only you know talk about it think about it and speculate about it I think There's a few reasons that are top of mind. One, because it's so water in in many, especially in uh, the developed nations, is even when there's a drought, I mean, we turn on the faucet and there seems like there's no imminent threat of anything happening. Right. Mm -hmm. We turn on the faucet, the water comes out and, you know, it's it's great. Um, Even in some, you know, it's just in Phoenix, which is in uh, Arizona, sort of ground zero for uh, the uh, mega drought that's gripping the southwest. I don't think there's any significant uh, water restrictions in place. and There's, you know, golf courses all over the place. So I think we're a bit spoiled as, you know, humanity. I think Mm -hmm. that's part of it. And so we take it for granted because our water delivery systems are are so good. I also think that it's just kind of emerging as a really a global threat in the sense that, you know, we haven't in, in, you know, this is true in the United States anyway, that it's only been a couple of years that we've been really like as a country, admitting that climate change is happening right yeah and yeah. so like i think in a lot of countries we haven't had to do anything because it hadn't really come to a head you know we've got mm. a growing population globally we've got a much greater understanding of global change and we're starting to see the disappearance of groundwater which now means that as the water table drops all over the world more and more and more wells are going dry and people are starting to realize like yep this is this is really happening and we uh, we need to uh, we need to slow down on the groundwater use. So that's just some mm. speculation. Oh, yeah, and, you know, I... here's the third here's the third thing. You know, water is cheap. And so that's part of the reason why I think it's overused and we take it for granted. I I feel like on the water side there needs to be monstrous public awareness. Okay? Yeah. And so when I lived in California, I thought it was really good. I thought that, um, so I was, you know, lived there for 20 years, but lived there in some really crushing drought periods. Like, you know, the last bad drought phase when I lived there was 2011 to 2015. And and I found that, I thought the whole state was on point. I thought, you know, the media was on it. The governor was on it. The, you know, state water agencies were on it. The researchers like myself were all focused on it. And, And, you know, I thought that the awareness was really high but like you can cross the border and go into say Arizona and like i just said i mean you don't see that much happening and so and globally you don't you don't see that much you don't see that much happening so i don't know i feel like with the appropriate you know national and global efforts we can raise tremendous awareness like we have about carbon and fossil mm. fuels but we are you know several steps behind
1: yes of course you mentioned drought, and and you were talking about floods earlier as well. You know, I, I think of an example like Turkey, where I see international media talking about the concurrent threats of drought and floods. That yeah. seems almost incongruent to me, I, you know, as not a scientist, that on the surface, those seem like opposing forces. Is, is right, that just because, right. you know, one end of the country is facing drought and the other is facing floods? Or is it even well, in the same so, spot? so, I
2: mean, this is it's certainly happening all over the world. And um, it is, uh, you know, it's really a challenge. It's a challenge for people to understand, but you know, what's really happening is that first of all, um, the atmosphere is uh, holding more uh, is warmer so it can hold more moisture mm-hmm. so that when it does rain, the rain tends to be you know heavier, more intense. What we're really seeing in places like Turkey, which is in, you know, the semi-arid arid parts of the world that are that are dry and getting drier because of changes in circulation and because of the greater drying power of air, it's drier, it can hold more moisture. That means it can evaporate more. Right. And so what we're really seeing is longer periods of drought. But when it does rain, it's more intense because the atmosphere is holding more water. And so eventually that, you know, what goes up comes down mm. and it's just happening at a, at a lot uh Heavier rate, and it's something that's really challenging, right? So I give this example of how my wife and I were driving across Western North America last last summer. Colossal drought covered Western North America, Mexico up into Canada, right up into Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan was like burned, scorched, like no, you know, covered in smoke when we were driving. This was last uh, last August. drove through montana and it's you know the orange sky and everything and then we get into idaho and it's like noah's flood and it was so bad we had to pull off the road about three times i think we sat a total of an hour found out later that someone had died in a flash flood and then we you know continued down into utah you know scorching heat Mm -hmm. um so you know this is this is our world and we have. Dumbest to ourselves <laughs> and I think that the challenge now is for us to figure out you know to slow down of course the rates of uh, fossil fuel burning, uh, but to figure out how to adapt how mm-hmm. to adapt to this and it, you know, these kind of things are not easy to adapt to.
1: Mm mm-hmm. True, but I, I suppose I'm going to ask you the difficult question. You're probably in the, the best position to see what kind of adaptions we can we can make. Um, you, you know your own kind of commentary or you know, publications and on your publications on your podcast or in, in your writing, you're, you're very solutions focused, which I think is fantastic. What, what gives you hope for the future?
2: I think that um, when, you, when we think about water, it really is a vehicle for collaboration. And, and not for conflict. And so when I look at again, you know, a lot of so much of what I've done, I'm sort of like one dimensional. I mean, so much of what I do is driven by the research and, and the uh, satellite data that we work with. And when we look at these regions that are these hot spots for too little water, whether it's, you know, drought or ice melting or, or groundwater depletion, they're transboundary right? That means they cross political boundaries. It could be a few states, it could be a few provinces, it could be a few countries. So, you know, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, you know, great example, or, you know, Middle East, Israel, Jordan, Palestine. And I, I know that people, because I've seen it, can come together around water and put aside their political differences because it's in their mutual interest. Everybody knows that, that they need water. Everybody knows that, uh, um, that our resources need to be shared, that, you know, Rivers are sometimes political boundaries, and it's in our best interest to to collaborate rather than to, to fight over that. And so um, I'm seeing more of that. I'm seeing more nonprofits built around that. Echo Peace uh, in the Middle East is a great, great example. So love to love to give a, a shout out to, to them. But there are lots of organizations around the world that are doing that kind of work. The other thing that gives me hope always is as a as a as a professor, seeing students in the classroom, working with my graduate students, passing on the baton. But, you know, it's not just passing on the baton to one person. It's been, you know, passing on the baton to tens of students over the years who will be doing the same with their own students, those of those of whom have gone into academics. You know, I feel like we're in good hands mm. moving mm. forward.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic note to end on, but I will ask if, is there anything that you wish I had asked? Was there anything that you came into the conversation today, you know, kind of hoping to say your piece on?
2: No, I think we actually pulled out some fun stuff, like, you know, what a security is like democracy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I guess if there's one thing I want to add, it's the the role of the role of industry. Mm. And what we need, I think, to really move the needle on water security, because industry, uses about 80% of the water that is withdrawn from our rivers and from our groundwater, and that's most of the food industry, that we are not going to move the needle on global water security without deep engagement from industry and in particular, the food industry. And so to me, that means real stewardship, real leadership. Like we need to be walking into, whether Washington DC or Ottawa up here in Canada, It can't just be me walking in to talk to government officials. It needs to be me and industry leaders saying, hey, you know what? We really need to manage this water because it's important for people. It's important for the environment. It's important to grow food. It's important for industry. You know, we need better regulation and and policy. And so I think we need the industry engagement on Mm. that. And so that's one thing I'd like to
1: add. I, I wonder whether, you know, we've seen the kind of nutritional debate get squashed by you know coca-cola and associated fructose lobbyists i suppose in mm-hmm. north america i half wonder yeah. whether there's room for collaboration there because I, I imagine you could cut out a significant amount of water use just by removing the parts of our diet that do not serve to actually nourish yeah. us at all I, <laughs>
2: I think that's that's an excellent point and part of the conversation is not just like crop per drop but calories and and nutrition per Mm. drop and that is absolutely the way that we will have to go in the future Mm. just like it's you know crazy to grow some of these things that we grow in the desert like i don't know cotton and alfalfa we will get to a point i believe that we become we global society so you know your country my country we get to the point where we start thinking much more carefully about how that water is allocated Mm. because we will we will have to because mm. there won't be enough, especially on the groundwater side, there won't be enough to go wrong.
1: Yeah. On that note, <laughs> thank you very much, Jay eddy for joining us today on the Water Justice Podcast.
2: It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
1: I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with Jay, and I hope you learned something from his valuable commentary. If you're interested in more of Jay's insights, you can find some of his research in the episode description or follow his What About Water podcast.
0: Thank you for being part of the conversation on this episode of the Water Justice Podcast. If the ideas of this podcast inspire you, please subscribe and consider sharing. With your help, we can foreground water justice as an urgent policy issue. This podcast is executive produced by Quinton Grafton, the convener of the Water Justice Hub at the Crawford School of Public Policy, the Australian National University. The podcast is a platform for truth-telling and justice for all in relation to water is hosted by me, Kat Taylor, and Tim Whiffen, and is produced by Tim Whiffen of Wimsey Productions. Thank you to the guests for making this possible.